Romans. Romans, Romans, Romans. What a challenge. Uh, you would have to be blind today to not have the sense that the culture that is emerging around us is not just a little different culture, but it is an extremely different culture to the point that you and I might have a hard time even recognizing a lot of things that at one time were very commonplace. I can remember when I was a kid. There were a few people that I went to school with that also went to church with. Uh, But most of the people that I knew, they were church people. There were a few that were not. But for the most part, they were church people. Uh, And we know that church people are not perfect. Matter of fact, church people very often are very imperfect. Uh, They get into trouble, however, when they try to project themselves as being those perfect people they really are not. But things are changing today. Church is not such a central focus of men and women. It's not such a central focus of families. It's not a central focus of our culture. I don't mean the church culture, I mean the sociological, political culture around us. Uh, And we look around and we see all the immorality that is so practiced so very openly and sometimes almost with glee and pride in the doing of it. And we wonder how we've gotten to this point. But most of us are old enough that we can remember a time when things were very different here. You can imagine, one of the things I really enjoy on some of the news programs is when they go out into the streets and they ask people just very simple questions. It's amazing the responses sometimes that they get in regard to particular, sometimes it's politics, sometimes you know, what's your opinion of, of president, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And you can imagine you get all kinds of different responses in regard to that, depending on whether the person happens to be a conservative or a liberal and their political approach and everything else. Uh, but there was a time, if you had been walking down the street and you'd stopped people just randomly and had a conversation with them, and sometime during that conversation, if you asked them uh, if they were a Christian, the vast majority of them would have said to you that they were. There was a time almost when people uh, identified being an American almost in the same sense as being a Christian. That's how prominent and, and dominant Christianity as a religion was on our culture. And we have Christianity to think for this great old U.S. of A. The greatest nation ever in this world, in all of history. And it was founded on Christian principles and was proud to be. The things have changed. The culture's changing. Going to church is not near as popular as it used to be. If you'd asked people a question as you stopped them, if they were Christians, they would have said yes. Today, you're going to find only a small percentage of them would say that. 
But if you had some follow-up questions, like for instance, some of those people when I was a kid, and even today, if you asked them if they were believers, they would say yes. And you would say, what is that based on? And they would say, if you ask them a question like, if you were to die today and you stood before God and he asked you, why should I allow you to come into heaven? One of the most common answers a few years ago would have been because I was baptized. I mean, it didn't, it, it really not because I attend church on a regular basis or this, that, or the other. It's people saying that this simply because at some point in my life I professed faith in Christ or I was baptized as an infant, which a lot of times people are. That's what gets me into heaven. And that's why I am confident in my religion, even though I may never go to church. I may never even darken the door of a church. You don't have to do those kinds of things to express your religion. But we need to understand something, that Paul was writing this letter to, obviously, a mixed group of people in Rome. Some of those people, obviously, were Gentiles, and some of them, obviously, were Jews. That's one of the reasons why you see him addressing over and over again the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. As we were talking about last week, he mentioned two particular names that, that Christians and Jews would recognize as being great forefathers of the faith. One of those was Abraham and one of those was David. And we know there are a lot of others that he could have mentioned as well. But we understand this, that, that there has to be a Jewish segment of the church in Rome because so much of what Paul is writing about is obviously designed to challenge their understanding and perspective on things. Because the trap that the Jews had fallen into was this, is what mattered most of all is that you were in the bloodline of Abraham. And if you were a male in the bloodline of Abraham, you had been circumcised they would have concluded that they were special, that they were, in fact, saved people for the reason that they had been circumcised when they were infants. In other words, they'd been circumcised their whole... they'd been uh, uh, saved their whole lifetime because God's sign and seal had been placed on them when they were born. Not a lot was given to the religion. It would be just like sometimes people saying what we said earlier, and that is, I'm saved because I was baptized. The sign and seal of God in the New Testament was applied to me at some time, therefore I'm set apart, therefore I'm saved. Remember the point that Paul was making in the early verses in chapter 4 last week is this, is that some people will say the gospel something new. Jesus came to bring us the gospel. It was a brand new idea. It was a newfangled thing. No one ever thought about it. It never dawned on anybody. What Paul was doing in those first verses was arguing that is a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. That the root of the gospel has been around almost from the beginning. 
that Abraham, in essence, believed the same gospel that we believe, that David believed the same gospel that we believe. And that is that the righteousness that is necessary for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven is not our own. Because no one is righteous. No, not one. Ever. And that means this, that if we're going to, if, if, the, if the requirement is righteousness and we don't have it, it means it's got to come from um, some outside source of us. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. Now, did Abraham and David understand everything that you and I do about the gospel? No. They lived before the time when Christ came. So they had knowledge, they had real knowledge, they had good knowledge, they had true knowledge, but it wasn't as near complete knowledge as ours is. And this is one of the lessons that I've been trying to drive home all through here is this, is that we sit on the other end of many, many years of being privileged people, more privileged people, because we've not only seen Christ come and Christ minister and then Christ leave and promise to come back, but we also have the unfolding of 2,000 years of the history of the church. All of that benefits us. In other words, it puts us in a place that other people weren't. In other words, you and I have a lot of answers that David and Abraham did not have. Again, what he is, we're going to be starting. I'm going to start back in, at the beginning of the chapter, and I'm going to read for a little while, and then I'll stop. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Let me tell you, that might be the most important verse maybe the second most important verse, certainly in the top two or three verses in the whole book of Romans, that you should know. The quoting of Genesis fifteen six. It's the proof text that you see the authors of the Bible going to over and over and over again, proving that Abraham was a man of faith. And it was faith, but through his faith, that righteousness was reckoned to him. That Abraham and David were saved fundamentally the same way that we are. Through their faith. Now the one who works his wage was not reckoned as a favor, but uh, as what was due. In other words, when you do works, then, then whoever you're doing the works for is indebted to you to pay for it. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David. He uses David here as an example in what David writes. In other words, if we just look at the things that David wrote, we, we can come to some understanding of what he knew. And what does David write? He speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. 
David understood the fundamentals of the gospel. This is Abraham did. Then we get to verse 9 where we're picking up this morning. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised? Faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. There you go again. Genesis 15, 6. How then was it reckoned while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, uh, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, and he might, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. Do you understand that when he wrote that, those people that he's writing to in this letter, whether they were Gentiles or Jews, they understand something very clearly at that point, and that is we are all children of Abraham. Not because of his bloodline, but because of his faith. That he is the spiritual father of all who believe. And the father of circumcision to those who not uh, only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. The promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. In order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I tell you, there's some things that upset me. One of the things is this, is there's certain types of theology you find very much entrenched in the church today that continues to make a separation between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It's anti-Bible. It's anti-New Testament. What you're going to see over and over again is the emphasis is there's no longer this distinction to be made between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, that we are all descendants of Abraham through his faith, brought together as one body. Not one body that's got two separate divisions in it, but as one body Jews and Gentiles together, no longer separated. And I want to just challenge you with this morning. If you, you come across some teaching like this that just continues to drive this separation between and, and emphasize this point of distinction between Jews and Gentiles, you need to run away from it. And there's a lot of it out there. So what are we going to say? One of the interesting things here is this. Is he uses Abraham as an example here in our text. To prove his point. Because there was so much emphasis in the Jewish, Judaic approach to things. about circumcision 
misapplied. There was a sense in which they believed that your circumcision saved you. That you were saved by your circumcision. Because that that established your bloodline with Abraham. Do you understand that sometimes Christians do the same thing as far as baptism goes? We understand this. Abraham's circumcision did not save him. Yet was his response in faith to the commandments of God. He did. The interesting thing is this. When you ask the question, which came first, Abraham's faith or circumcision? The point that Paul makes here is this. Is there were 14 years that transpired between the time that Genesis says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him in righteousness. It was 14 years before he was ever circumcised. This is one of the primary points that Paul is making in this text. And he's speaking to people who believe that circumcision saves you. So what does that say to them? No. Abraham was saved when he believed. Circumcision was something that came along later. Are we to believe that Abraham was an unbeliever between the time that he had that conversation with God and God made him those promises and this, that, and the other? And he only became a believer once he was circumcised? Now, I'm assuming everyone here understands what circumcision is, right? I'm not going to explain it. It's too painful to think about it. But we understand what it is. And we understand that God commanded Abraham to do this. And what did Abraham do? On the day that God told him, he went himself and himself circumcised or did it himself. And he did the same thing with Ishmael and all of the the men that were in his household. Every one of them. On the, the day that God told him to do it. I would imagine that took a whole lot of faith. But he did it. Old Testament circumcision is what we call a sacrament. Sacraments are special things that God sets apart. They have special meaning for church people. Now, it was a sense in which circumcision had a purpose, and that was of setting his people apart from everyone else. And just remember all those promises that God had made to Abraham, that he would give him the land, that he would... He would make, give him a great name, that he would make him into a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as stars in the sky or the sand, the sand grains on the seashore. Thankfully, he didn't stop there. There was another blessing. Because if it stopped there, then most of the people in this room, if not all of us, would be left out. 
Who knows? You know, you know, we don't know where our bloodline comes from. We know this. We go back far enough. Everybody in the world, if they go back far enough, they, they, they're related to Abraham, right? There's a sense in which everyone in this room is related to everyone in this room just simply because we are human beings that share the same genome. We may be very, very distantly related, but every one of us in this room is blood-related to other people in this room through different lines. We understand that circumcision was an Old Testament sacrament, but we also understand that circumcision is no longer a sacrament in the church. Paul makes that very clear in the book of Galatians. I mean, one of the things that was going on in the early church was this. Is you had Jewish believers and you had Gentile believers. And the Jewish believers were demanding the Gentile believers be circumcised. Paul had gone to Galatia. And he preached the gospel to Gentiles. And they'd come to faith in Christ. And then he left. And people called Judaizers came in. They started teaching the people, well, yeah, it's great that you guys have converted to the faith, but you've got to be circumcised. And how did Paul respond to that? Well, they're right, or maybe you ought to think about it. Or Basically, said, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't you believe it? But sacraments are signs and seals that have been applied to the people of God ever since God told Abraham to be circumcised. They're special things. They're signs. In other words, it's God's mark being placed upon that person. It sets them apart from everybody else. Sealing has to do with the fact that they seal the promises of God on that person. They don't save anybody, though. Circumcision doesn't save anybody. Baptism doesn't save anybody. But it sets you apart as being different than other folks in the eyes of God. Some people would like to think that it puts you in a place of less responsibility, but what I'd say to you is it puts you in a place of greater responsibility. If you're not going to believe in Jesus Christ, you might be better off never to be baptized or circumcised. It's interesting that Jesus was both. He was circumcised and baptized. It's interesting the Apostle Paul was both. Circumcised first, baptized later. Now we need to understand that they lived during the transition of going from the Old Testament into the New Testament. That's the reason. It's not because believers today need to be both. 
there was a time when what you would find is that most of the children, most of the male children in the United States were circumcised. Surprisingly today, it's only about 55% of them that are. 55% of the boys that are going to be born today will be circumcised. The other 45% will not be. Why is it? Well, it's not a necessary thing. But one of the things I would say this morning is this, is for whatever reason, we don't know exactly what the reasoning was, that the church continued in the practice of circumcision. And we understand that probably a lot of it had to do with a lot of the roots were with the Jewish people. Not with the idea that, that by circumcising my son that I'm saving him. That's not what it was all at all. It had to do with a sign, putting the sign of God upon and it's just, it's just kind of been traditionally practiced by most Christians, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, through the history of the church. But what I'm saying is today there's even a movement away from that. And I would imagine, to me, this is one of those marks of the fact that the church is having less and less of an impact upon the culture around it. And so many people used to do a lot of things because church people did those kinds of things and everyone kind of wanted to be thought of as a church person even if they weren't and this, that, and the other. And so just, kind of, But now the culture is changing to the point that people don't even feel threatened if they don't follow after the norm that's been practiced on the law. We seem to be losing ground. I mean, did you ever think for one minute that we would ever be having conversations about whether we should help infants that have survived botched abortions or just lay them there laying on the table to die? Did you believe we would ever be having talk about wicked and evilness? How could there be anything more wicked and evil than that? Poor little defenseless children who can do nothing to save themselves depending on people like us to do it for them. And they're dying. How could you be a doctor and turn your back on that child? How could you be a nurse and turn your back on that child? How could you go home that night and sleep ever again in your lifetime? To be part of such a horrendous, horrible terrible, awful practice and feel good about it. That goes to show you guys, this is a measure of just how black and how dark the human heart really is when it has not God in it. People are capable of doing anything and everything, no matter how horrible and terrible and God-awful it is. If God lets loose those reins, you and I could be one of those people. There's enough sin left in us, believe it or not. One of the great benefits of having the sign and the seal and, and of knowing Jesus Christ is this, is God restrains sin in you like he doesn't restrain sin in other people. You know, if we get cocky and puffed up and proud, all you've got to do is loosen those reins a little bit and you will do things you never thought you would do and feel okay about doing it. See, we need Christ. We need Christ as much of Christ as we can have of Christ. Every minute, every moment, every day.
all the time, unrelentingly, unceasingly, and I'm hoping you're praying for that. Give me Jesus. Give me more of Jesus. Give me as much of Jesus as I can have. Give me so much of Jesus, I'll be filled up with Jesus. That's my only hope. It's the only thing that will make me any different than anybody else. God will be true to his promises as always. That promise he made to Abraham to make him a father of nations will be fulfilled, but it will not be fulfilled by the Jewish people. It will be fulfilled by the church of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile together under his lordship. Verses 15 and 16, he says this, for the law brings about wrath. Why would the law bring about wrath? Because when you look at the law and see what it says and you realize we don't do it, then the natural consequence would be the wrath of God. And I hope when you look at the law of God, you don't just see this mirror and you're saying, gosh, that just means to a T. Just describes me perfectly. I'm all those things. I do all those things perfectly. And this is one of the things the Jews just, just under, didn't understand, and that is this is God gave us the law for a lot of different reasons. One of those was to demonstrate to us and to show us His holiness. Another one was to show us what sin is. If there were no law, Paul says this later in Romans 6, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know what sin is. The law tells me what is sin. But they stopped there. There's another purpose of the law. And that is to convict us of our own sin. To convict us of the simple fact that I don't keep it. I haven't for one day of my life kept all of those Ten Commandments anywhere close to perfectly. Not one day. It's a mirror that, that, that we look at and it shows us when we look at it and it reflects back in our face. It's not that we see this perfect and great and wonderful person who's, who's absolutely righteous in every way, who loves the Lord his God with all of his heart and mind, or her, all his heart and mind and soul and strength. He loves his neighbor. That's not what you see. You see this distorted image that is not attractive at all. As a matter of fact, it's downright ugly. Because it helps you to see the real you. Not what you think you look like. Not what you want to look like. But what you actually do look like. 
from God's perspective. But hallelujah for one thing. Hallelujah for righteousness that comes from an outside source. Hallelujah for righteousness that is gained for you by someone else. Hallelujah for the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because that is what saves people. It's the only thing that will save people. It's the only thing that can save people. It's the only thing that has ever saved anybody or ever will save anybody. Hallelujah. Praise God for the gospel. Because without it, no one would be saved. Ever. Not even Abraham or David. That is what makes you special. Not being a Jew or a Gentile or this, that, or the other. Because God doesn't give that gift to everybody. We're going to get more into this. And that is that God gives it to some. He doesn't give it to everybody. He doesn't even make it available to everybody. And in some sense, you have to not really. If you believe, it's because God has chosen to love you from the very beginning of time. And he's done everything necessary to bring you to himself. And because he's done everything necessary to bring you to himself, he will do everything he has to to keep you to himself. Your salvation does not depend upon your strength to hold on to Jesus. Your salvation depends upon Jesus' strength to hold on to you. Which way would you rather it be? I can tell you this. If it was dependent upon me, I would have left the fold a long time ago. I never would have come into the fold. Do you understand that it has to be by grace? That if it were not for grace, no one would be saved. Not one. Not a single one. We'll get more into that later on. And if you're a believer, you should feel really special. I'm not talking about puffed up, proud, arrogant, special. You should understand what real love means, what pure love looks like. And like we said before last week, of all, all people, we should be oozing grace out of every pore in our skin. Because we've tasted it. And we like the way it tastes. And we want other people to taste it. You can't hold a gospel from people. You've got to share it. And let God do with it what he will. That's his part. Our part is doing things like inviting guys to men's fellowship dinners. Having conversations with our golf buddies every now and then about our religion. 
sharing the gospel with people and what we say and in what we do. Let me tell you, when you do that, one of the things that's going to shock you is the people who actually respond to it because very often they're the people who you thought least likely to do that. And sometimes the people that you thought were more likely candidates are going to be the ones who turn a blind eye to you. That's full of surprises. Look at me. Look at yourself. Would the world have chosen you? Would the world have died for you? Would the world have loved you with an un, unfailing, un, undying love for all of eternity? Would it? Can it give you anything you want? Can it give you anything you really desire? Can it give you anything worth having? God, God alone gives you all of that. Praise Jesus. Praise the Father. Praise the Holy Spirit. They did it all.